with another Leaders Performance Podcast. My name's David Kushner, Head of Content at Leaders. With me at Leaders Global HQ on the outskirts of London is John Porch, editor of the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. John, you haven't been having another of your conversations. No, I haven't, David. But Leaders Performance Institute super sub James Emmett, our editor-at-large, has been. He made his return to the podcast this week when he caught up with football coach Mark Warburton in Doha. And what is the conversation we're going to hear about? Well, Mark talks about the 24 years he spent on the trading floor. He used to work for a bank or several banks before taking what he calls the calculated risk of going into football. And now he's managed Glasgow Rangers, Nottingham Forest, Brentford. And he tells James that he's looking forward to getting back into the game in the near future. So it's definitely a risk that's worked out for him so far. Mark's a fascinating man. I'm sure there are a few good stories in this uh, conversation. What else was on the agenda? So he walks us through his journey in football and how he has worked with owners, particularly Matthew Benham at Brentford. And he also goes into his preferred man management styles and the pressure brought on by coaching in elite football, as well as his efforts to handle the media scrutiny. Mark also served as technical director at Brentford and he digs into the ins and outs of that role with James as well. Anything else we need to know? Well, it's worth noting, actually, David, that the reason why Mark was in Doha, he was over there with leaders, in fact, delivering some sessions on executive leadership development to a group of Qatar professionals working on the delivery of the 2022 FIFA World Cup, which, as you know, is in Qatar. He refers to this at various points throughout the chat, and it's worth flagging that here for our listeners. Super stuff. Uh, Should we get into it? Let's go. Mr. Mark Warburton, thank you very much for joining us. Could you uh, do a little bit of um, word, uh, word, not wordplay, that's the wrong thing. Can you set the scene for us? Where are we? We're in uh, W Hotel in Doha, and um, the evening of the first day of the the course, and Mm -hmm. um, a pleasure to to meet some good people today uh, and talk about leadership, various styles of leadership. Uh, I understand they have a a full week ahead of them, but uh, it was a pleasure to meet them, some good questions from them as well. And a really smart, attentive group. Mm-hmm. So you've been out here with us um, on the executive um, development, executive leadership course that mm-hmm. we're running out here in Qatar, specifically talking about your experiences moving from the trading floor, working in finance, um, to uh, working on the training ground, working in football. Um, and, and you um, have had a career thus far that's taken you... Um, from uh, Brentford, technical director and manager at Brentford, uh, Rangers, just manager at Rangers, uh, and Nottingham Forest too. Um, What about that transition from, uh, in fact, actually, why not start by talking a little bit about uh, your finance career? What uh, what were you doing when you were were trading? Uh, Finance career, I was uh, in the currency markets, so obviously trading currency pairs, my my focus was dollar-yen, dollars against yen, but the big operations would trade all the various currency pairs so prior to the euro, dollar mark, dollars was everything. Mm. Um, obviously the euro came in board and, and changed the, the makeup of the desks, but, but, but significant volume of currency going through, young, a male-dominated world early on, thankfully changing, but a male-dominated world where young guys were given enormous responsibility, um, but they had to learn very quickly. Uh, and, and the media likes to paint a very gung-ho picture of you know Wild West Casino but some, some very, very responsible trading, some very uh, astute individuals, um, recognition of risk-reward, good decision-making, and dealing with pressure and stress, dealing with budgets, target amounts, short, medium, longer-term targets, 
an environment where teamwork and communication and all of those words you associate with football mm. were actually very relevant mm-hmm. in, in the financial world. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, uh, give us an understanding of, um, I mean you've, you've painted a picture of the similarities there, um, but give, a, give us an understanding of what your kind of role and responsibility uh, was when you were trading. Or what so kind of targets did you have on your head? If you're trading, um, so let's put it as a, you know, the, according to the size of the bank, the institution. So, you know, I started off at a smaller shop and uh, really had to teach yourself very quickly. And you're dealing in, the guys were dealing in amounts between naught and five million. And that sounds excessive to guys outside the market, but naught to five million. And then you realize that very quickly there's significant amounts going through the market and you're just a little mm-hmm. bit part player on the outside pecking away trying to make a living. Um, then very fortunate to move to bigger institutions where now the amounts are tens, twenties, fifty millions and then you move again where the amounts are tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds, two hundreds, three hundreds, etc. But these are two hundred, three hundred, four hundred million dollars at a clip mm. uh, and, and you're taking positions and trading all day in tens, twenties, fifty million dollars. Um, so again to the outsider it sounds very, very excessive, but don't forget you're dealing with huge corporations. Foreign exchange exists to allow trade to happen. Um, so an example would be, you know, Japanese car companies in the UK selling the cars and then repatriating the money. So they'll be selling sterling and buying yen. There might be a, a trade for, you know, 500 million pounds, for example. So these trades would happen all day long. You know, the various investment authorities in the Middle East, the Japanese customers, the, the Indian Chinese customers, huge traders allied that to the individuals who would trade, um, you know, very wealthy billionaires who were trading. So you, you can now see the depth of the market and understand how much money actually goes through the various financial centers. So again, for me, as a competitive individual, um, that was a really fantastic environment. You know, mm-hmm. People talk about, oh, you worked in a bank, you're not sitting behind a desk just doing paperwork. It was a really feisty, competitive environment where you relied on your partners, your teamwork, your communication, and it was really enjoyable. Obviously, since the crash, the market has changed. But up to that point, James, it was a really uh, a really vibrant environment. So how long were you working in trading before you made the leap? Long time. I was 20, 23, 24 years. Mm-hmm. Um, always you know, playing part semi-professional football, whether I worked in the world of coaching, be it a high school team in the States or a college team or as in North Carolina under nine goals team and a, a, you know the bank team but wherever I was I was coaching I loved the game I loved the fresh air and, and I love football um, and very ignorant on my part not realizing that actually badges and qualifications existed and I returned to these shores and go wow I need to get myself qualified quickly did that uh, and the more I the more I got the qualifications the more the the bug was biting you to do it properly and, and the love of football had never gone away and you get to for me 2000 late 2002 approaching your 40th birthday and thinking if I don't do this now I'm never going to do it and it sounds very profound but it was just one of those things you live once you either do it now and uh, it was a rude awakening gave my wife the shock of her life that you leave a very good salary senior position um, where you built a good reputation to suddenly start completely afresh in a, in a, in a scary industry where turnover is very very obvious uh, and the security is very limited so it was a big risk but it's one I, I, I call it a calculated risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, what was your first job in football after you after you made that leap? I um, I travelled around Europe. First of all, I, I knew well that my son was a young academy player at Watford, and they were keen for me to come in there. But I wanted to um, I wanted to um, as my son called yeah, it. Yeah, when you guys <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's um, very strange. Yes, as soon indeed. As you there's, mentioned my, there's my son mentioned. Yes, yeah. uh, he was a young academy player at the time, 
and uh, I, I was very keen to go in, but I wanted to improve my knowledge. Uh, and I don't want to, again, sound holier than thou, but it was, if you're going to go into that environment, I knew that I wouldn't, I mentioned today, I wouldn't be satisfied with just being a standard coach. I needed more. I needed more responsibility. That was my background. I couldn't go from that high-powered world and that level of responsibility to then just become a you know run-of-the-mill, so to speak. Um, so, travel around Europe, learnt an awful lot from some great people, the loves of sport in Lisbon and Ajax and Barca and all these various institutions. Enormously thankful to, to gain access to, to what they were doing, how they develop players, what are the best, what does what does world class look like in terms of young talent coming through? The, the term, as I said today, is used too freely, too commonly, um, and it really it really gave me a depth to my knowledge. So I could go into to Watford, very thankful for the opportunity, but I was comfortable in my ability. I was confident you had to keep on learning, but my starting point was strong as opposed to going a weak starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, and the role that you had at Watford, I was a young academy coach, mm -hmm. um, so I came in as full time academy. You'd, you'd work worked with the youth team during the day, bearing in mind the club at the time had some severe financial difficulties. So you're working with the youth team in the morning, getting access to his Eddie Boothroyd was the manager, um, you know, who was I owe a lot of big debt to. You know, he looked after me and promoted me quickly. Um, then the reserves in the evening, you'd go and do the babies and nines and tens at 4.30, and then you do the 11s and 12s, and you finished up with the 15s and 16s. So great depth, you know, Sean Dyche was my youth team coach, and the, the two of us would take all the sessions. And all credit to Sean, I mentioned that recently, that. He was always destined to become a, a first-team manager, working with senior players. But he knew too that he had to um, strengthen his depth of knowledge, and he, you know, he did every single task. You know, we were pumping the footballs up and cleaning the bits, and mm. changing the tyre on a minibus, all the things you have to do as a youth team coach. And and we stuck in together. So, great learning ground. I got quickly promoted to senior and then academy director. So now I'm in charge of the academy. Um, set the, the first school of you know full-time school for the students versus its kind in the country, which gained a lot of attention from the bigger clubs. Um, worked on a tournament, the European tournament, 24 of the biggest clubs, Barca's and Dortmunds, etc., Liverpool, City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, that type of tournament. And um, again, you're building your knowledge, you're building your contact base, which is very, very useful going forward. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about imposter syndrome. Um, it's a sort of a buzz phrase that's going around at, at the moment, you know, where, where you don't feel necessarily that you're the right person, you don't feel confident enough in your own abilities to handle uh, particular situations or particular people. I think it's a common um, issue, whether it's raised or not, in uh, football or in sport, where coaches are dealing with often uh, players who are very high profile, who, who maybe have uh, an arrogance about them as well. And I wanted to talk specifically to you about it because you spent so long away from football, or not visibly in um, high level football, and then you came into football. Was there a sense at all of you having to get over um, a perception of you being an outsider? Yes. And if so, how did you do that? Yes, I think that's a, that's a good, good question, James. I think. Um one, confidence in your own ability, hence the depth of knowledge I referred to earlier. Um, but you've got to go in there and you've got to show them that you know what you're doing. Now, that's a, I'll expand on that. So in terms of the structure of their training day, they want to know what they're doing. This sounds um, somewhat derogatory to senior professionals, but they will tell you they spend their professional life being told what to do. You will eat this at this time and be here. And they want structure. They want to know. So putting a four-week calendar so there you are guys, you will always be four weeks ahead and 
their, their family men, their, you know, etc. They need to know what to do with their children and whatever else. There you go. There's your calendar. There's every single session, every single trip, hotel that you're going to be on involved in. So again, you give them structure and you, you get their attention. We're organised. First problem. Then makes make, then you have to make training enjoyable. They're going to work. You know, some guys go to an office. Some guys go to a building site. They go to a football club and to a training pitch. You have to make their work enjoyable. You have to make it challenging. They have to leave that training pitch, feel that A, they enjoyed it, and B, they were better for it. And once you start doing that, you've got their attention. Then you talk, and then how do you talk to them? Is it a, collect, a generic, you know, you right guys, or are you actually taking your time to meet them individually, not too formally, but to meet with them over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, ask about their family, ask about their children, show that you know, show that you care. And once you do that, you've now got them on side. And I'm very, very thankful that, not thankful, that's the wrong word, I'm, I'm appreciative of how they responded, but I think they were also very appreciative of, of the manner that I displayed with them. I was aware that I didn't have the playing career that many people would have. So I look at a, a, a Mauricio Pochettino, for example, Sean Dyche. You know, Mauricio's an Argentine international centre-half, so he comes with an outstanding playing reputation. It's not that I'm comparing myself to him, of course, but I'm just saying in terms of managers and coaches who have got really good playing careers. So that would be, in my mind, my Achilles heel. So when I looked at the system, one someone I absolutely trust implicitly uh, and respect enormously, but David Weir, for example, had an outstanding Premier League playing career, Scottish international 80 caps, he for cup final captain at Rangers. So David came in for the fact that I respected him, uh, uh, you know, his, his opinion of the game, his, um, his thoughts on the game, development of players. He's a, he's a very articulate, very intelligent individual, but for me that filled a massive void as well in that you can't question the management's playing ability because there's David Weir and um, that was very very useful for me and it wasn't me being devious anyway but that you look at your areas of weakness or, or potential weakness and how can you fill them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a good response I think. Um, so to take you back to the, the Watford days you were coaching a variety of different age groups, um, moved to Brentford uh, from Watford uh, and worked your way up to the role of technical director. Now the, uh, the How did that happen? What was your actually happened journey? was Watford were in, as I mentioned, dire financial mm. straits. Uh, and the new owners came in and said we had to get finance for the academy on. So I tried to get, I, I'd come across Matthew Benham, um, who's now the owner of, of Brentford. Um, very, very smart guy, very clever individual. Um, an enormous respect for him, but I brought him into Watford to try and get him to buy to buy Watford. He's having problems buying Brentford. I think it was a, like a people's collective, and he couldn't necessarily get all the shares. And I brought him to Brentford. He met with Aidy Boothroyd. He then met with Malky Mackay and Sean Dyche, and he then met with uh, Brendan Rodgers, who were the various people at uh, Watford at the time. Um, but Matthew was a Brentford fan through and through. So that didn't that didn't happen. But I met him. Uh, we got on very very well, and I got a phone call one night. Even, uh, well, early morning, quarter past one in the morning, to say he had sacked the previous manager. There was 18th in League One, and would I come and coach the first team? And literally, James, it was that night. I got up at 20 past one, and I'm on the PC going through learning the names of the players. I hadn't, I didn't know the squad. Mm -hmm. So, but again, that preparation, as basic as it may sound, I turned up the following morning. Morning, Gary. Morning, Charlie. Morning, mm -hmm. Leon. How are you? And, and you know their names and mm -hmm. it just makes that ooh, you catch their attention mm -hmm. who's this guy and suddenly if you can show that they enjoy training and the session was bright and vibrant and there's your calendar by the way well so you've now got their attention so did that we I think we finished 10th in the in the league that year I believe so as we recovered well um, I wanted the manager's job if I'm brutally honest um, but Matthew wanted me to become technical director and he appointed Uwe Rosler who's now at Malmo I believe 
So for me, I was a little bit miffed, if I'm honest, but um, a fantastic couple of years for me in terms of learning so much. I was in charge of the first team academy, everything football, basically. The financial aspects, you know, the buying and selling the players and creating the squad and using the loan market and dealing with the agents and, and obviously speaking to Matthew every single day. A uh, fantastic learning curve. Who taught you how to be a technical director? I think there's some... Um, the role's growing, definitely. You know, there's an evolution um, across. I mean, it, it's further along the line, I guess, in um, Italy and Spain and places like that. But in the, in England, I think it's coming. You know, more and more clubs have technical directors, sporting directors, football directors, whatever the title. The role is sort of similar, but there is still, because of those different titles, an ambiguity Absolutely. in terms of what the responsibility is. Well, you've nailed it there. So interrupt you. You've nailed it in terms of. I, I, I get frustrated when I hear he's a sporting director, he's a technical director, he's a director of the football department. He's head of football operations. Mm. What, what does it know, all mean? Yeah. What does it all mean? Um, how did I? How was I qualified for that job? I think my background, in terms of financial side and, and financial awareness, I think um, dealing with individuals in terms of dealers um, and, and how people learn, etc. Um, and also just taking over the common traits of, of people, of speaking to people respectfully, being firm, being honest, being being transparent. Dealing with the agents, you know, here's our commission. This is what we pay, five percent. I want seven and a half. Okay, but you, you won't deal with us. We're very clear. Not trying to follow the normal game. This again sounds basic, but you know, our offer for the player might be X, and the wages paid will be Y. And the agents, well, I want double X and three times Y. No, mm. it's X, and it's Y. And if you want to come here, no, he's no, no, nowhere. At the moment you give in at that point, you know, you lose all credibility. Mm. We were quite firm. We're not going to start down here with a move to getting up to here. We may give in a little bit on housing or relocation or whatever, but the fact is there's always wages. And the, uh, the agents very quickly understood that this is how we operated. We were very fair. We looked after the players when they came to us. We really looked after them. Um, and, and thankfully, it allowed us to form good relationships with some key agents, get some good players on board, young players, who I think everyone would agree for Brentford became really really good value, you know, great staff, David Weir was there, a guy called Frank McParland, who was at Liverpool for 20 years, working at the very highest level, but outstanding recruitment individual, enormously successful for us at Brentford, and you look at the likes of James Tarkowski in the international, and Mozart de Bay and Andre Gray and, and Yotta and Bidwell and Forshaw, and all these various names, they came very cheaply to, to Brentford mm. and they've, they've made good money, so I'm delighted for everyone. Matthew Benham, the owner at Brentford, who you've talked about, um, sort of made a name for himself, made a name for the club uh, as sort of going down this money ball route and using um, statistical analysis, um, perhaps at a, a different level to most other clubs, and really trusting in that and unearthing bargains in the transfer markets. How did your, did you accept that kind of philosophy quite easily? Did you take to it naturally or, yeah. or were you there to provide a bit of a counterbalance? No, well firstly, I, I left Brentford, uh, as I think it's well documented now, because Matthew wished to bring in a number of foreign players in the January window. Mm -hmm. um, and I disagreed with that because we were in a really strong position, we in the playoff places, the, the, the squad were performing well, we had a really tight unity and uh, togetherness about the squad. Now. Two things. One, Matthew's the owner. He pays the bills. It's his club. So absolutely, it's his prerogative to do that. I've never, ever been critical of Matthew in that respect. 
however will be. Um, but as I said, from my point of view, I was very receptive to those players coming. I'm not against foreign players, far from it, but it was a timing. Had that been the summer, absolutely no problem because you have pre-season to bed them in, understand their ways, get, to get the families come over, all the various things, change off-pitch issues which might affect their on-pitch performance. When it's in the January window, it's a far harder window to operate within. And when you bring players in and they've got family arriving and they haven't got an apartment, the focus has to be football immediately. There's no winter break that allows them to settle in. So my point um, was I thought it was the wrong thing to do. Um, obviously what happened is uh, I found out that Brentford were looking at someone else and, and Matthew's you know, very honest. And, and I would have put, had we got promoted to the Premier League that year, I would have still gone. I would have still been sacked. Mm. Or be parted that way, should we say it's the wrong word, be parted ways. But no no um, animosity, enormous respect for Matthew Benham and the club. It's a fantastic club and they're doing so well now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at how they're performing and the players they've unearthed and sold and etc. So all credit to them. Just remembering that scenario, it was a, a couple of years ago now. Uh, what year was that? It 20, was 2015. 2015. I remember it happening. I sort of remember reading about it and listening uh, to various bits and pieces about it. And it struck me as being sort of enormously unfair um, on you, really, because you'd, you'd been you'd enjoyed great success there, and, and the team and and, uh, and everything had been growing and building. You're in with a real chance of being promoted to the Premier League that season. Had you come fifth the year before? You just missed out on the playoffs. No, we just missed out on the play- we did, No, we came fifth, so we got promoted from League One, and, and then we came fifth. And then you came fifth. And we in the playoffs, yeah. and we lost to Middlesbrough. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and it struck me as being a sort of bizarre situation. But I mean, and we've talked uh, about this before, and talking about uh, one of the key roles that um, a football manager or a technical director, or whatever you want to call it, has to do is manage upwards manage the owner, manage the chairman, manage whoever it is is making decisions about their career. And it strikes me that you, you've, you've got this respect for Matthew because he was completely transparent with you at all times. You don't agree with what he wanted to do, but he acted with transparency at every point, even though his decision-making was a bit bizarre. Absolutely, and, and Matthew and I, you know, he's, he's given me some nice references, etc., and, and I'll always speak very highly because Yes, exactly as you say, James. He was transparent. Um, I, I always saw it that it's his club, mm. you know. And, and I, I know about some managers and coaches keep the owner and the CEO as far away as possible. And I, I'm not, I'm not of that ilk. I think it's important that the players see the owner. You know, I go out my way to make sure you welcome to come and watch training, have lunch with the players. The more visible he is, the more he understands how they think, how they work, sees their desire, their togetherness. Then the better for everyone, mm. you know. And, and you could talk to, I would talk to him every evening, every day. Um, a certain director I'm speaking to, Uwe, the manager, ten, ten times a day, literally, mm. coffee every morning. But I think Matthew to myself, myself to Uwe, and our certain director, we adhered to certain boundaries. So for me, um, although I was itching to go on the training pitch, I wouldn't wear a tracksuit. I wouldn't cross the white line while he's training because that, that was the manager's domain. Uh, and I didn't want to lose any sense of trust and that I had his back. Um, and those basic traits of, of trust and honesty, integrity, people, I think, lose them or speak lightly of them. Mm. Um, and for a relationship to work, especially in that competitive environment, you have to have it. Your comment about earlier about the technical directors, the role growing, absolutely agree. I believe that every club will have a technical director, certainly the top two divisions. Obviously, financially, it may not work lower down. Um, but I think every club in the, in the top two, at least, will have that technical director because of the amount of work and onus and media exposure and because of what's at stake now absolutely but 
for every single club that has that role, you cannot lose sight of the key traits. I'm asked, what makes a good technical director? Get on with the manager. Get on with you have to have that uh, affability, um, the openness, the honesty to, to speak your mind at the right time, but in the right way. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that relationship, James, then you're in a good place. What's your view of um, the ideal set of responsibilities for that person who basically sits between the manager and the CEO or the manager and the, and the owner, the technical director? It's a good question. I, th I think um, the, the, the manager's role in, in terms of selecting players, the, the training of the players, etc., that won't change. That should never change, by the way. I'm very, very firm on that. Mm -hmm. um, the recruitment of players is where the previously seen as grey areas need to be more transparent and that might well be a, a committee type situation where you have the tech director, you have the, the manager, you have head of recruitment, you know, the team scout for example, maybe the CEO involved as well mm -hmm. or the first team coach uh, and what do we need? So here we agree our player profiles and you know, the right back, these are the technical, tactical, physical, mental attributes we're looking for. Once you agree those profiles and the tech director and his team out looking for those type of players and they should be coming to the manager and saying there's five six seven guys that fit your criteria then we go through it together mm -hmm. and we might narrow that down to three and do the character research and the injury records and all the basic stuff that mm -hmm. your guys will know but then you come to that decision but I, I do believe that when a manager's got to work with that player day in day out and there has to be a final say for example I do believe that should be the, 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 mm -hmm. the manager's final say I understand however if it's an owner and when you hire the coach, you make it very clear to him, this is how we work, well then that's a different ball game. And that, sorry to, that, that to me is now, it should be a technical director being hired, and he has a key role in hiring the manager, and you clarify the roles and responsibilities. I think the problems you have, or will have, is where you have managers in situ, and you import a technical director, and now the fuzzy lines appear, and mm -hmm. the lack of clarity, and that for me is a situation that needs to be carefully looked at. Do you think the technical director should also um, have overall responsibility for youth development, what the academy looks like, whether the club has a philosophy of play, a general cultural uh, philosophy? I do, well? yeah, I do. I, was in, I had that um, responsibility at Brentford, and I first to admit it's a smaller club, so I could, get, I could really put my, my stamp for one of a you know, non-arrogant statement on it. Um, but I think at the bigger clubs, absolutely, the philosophy of the club, you want the... Why do you have academies? Why do you have development programs? Is to get players in the first team. That's why they exist. I think there's this romantic image of we all the you have community schemes for that, but but right now the amount of money that's invested in the youth schemes is to produce professional players, and it may well be it's a business model to use or to sell. To use exactly right, so you can fund the academy internally by selling X, Y, and Z, knowing that A and B will be in the in the first team and great and you look at various clubs in the Premier League now and it's working very very well indeed mm -hmm. um, you look at Chelsea for example in terms of uh, producing players to go out and they've sold and the Bamfords and all the various players that they've sold fantastic and mm -hmm. very very well so the system is working I do believe yeah the technical director can be in charge of the youth department the account director reporting into him but again that relationship is not a dominant it's a very trusted open relationship and the philosophy of the club should filter right the way through so if you change the first team manager, the capacity owner. The manager goes, but the style of play never really changes. And that type of continuity is so rewarding for the club. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking on um, the day that Claude Puel has uh, just been let go uh, from his job as manager of Leicester. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's been coming for a while. I think you know he had. Uh, I think it's the last three managers that Leicester have had have all been sacked after six games without a win. And, and this last game that Leicester had, a big defeat to Palace, was their sixth. So there's a pattern that has emerged. He's been in the job over a year, so you'd say that he's had, uh, you know, in relative terms, a good crack at it. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not the kind of longevity that managers certainly used to get. Already, I've just been watching uh, the Man Manchester United-Liverpool game on BN Sports here. Alan Pardew's in the studio. David Moyes is sort of uh, shifting about elsewhere. Um, Brendan Rodgers is believed to be the, the guy who's in the, in the hot seat to take that job. I know you've got your own opinion uh, as well. Do you think there is too? I mean, what's your take on the, the short-termism in, in management at uh, the moment? I think it's, you've hit on a, a very significant issue, one that's not. Uh, and it's affected all those managers as well that, we do, that are that are in the running for this job. Absolutely, and uh, you look at it and you realise. I mean, someone spoke today. One of the one of the, um, the guests on the course today spoke about Manchester United and Sir Alex, you know, the legend that is Sir Alex Ferguson. But you know, right at the very start, I think he'd be the first to say he read his book. He had a tough time, and they stuck with him, and it came to the Brighton Cup final, etc. But but you look back, and these days that wouldn't even happen. You're gone. You know, the average tenure, I think, in the Championship is less than nine months. So you, you have a situation now where you have different owners, um, and you have unrealistic expectation. Um, and I'm not being uh, negative in terms of ambition, of course. But it's a timescale of that of that ambition, uh, and if you go into a club and, and they expect to be playoffs and winning and top, of, it takes time. Now, Claude Perel, I've never met Claude Perel. I hate to see any manager or coach lose his lose his job. Um, he's he's taken over a team, a number of whom have been Premier League champions three years, two years ago. Um, so they've tasted the the absolute pinnacle of the tree, so to speak. Um, and and here they are, whether they're aging whether there's a different style that they're reluctant to, he's had to, Claude Perot's had to deal with some issues and the shape of the squad has had to be changed. The new players coming in, the Barnes coming in and the Madisons and Damari Grays and Jill Wells, etc. So he's changing the age and the face of the squad and that again takes time to, to, to blend in and, and, and to grow together. Is a year long enough? No, it's not. No, it's not. But with that being rude to you, your comment was he's, he's had a fair quack. In relative terms. In relative terms. Yeah. And that's now the perception. What mm. if he's had a year? Mm. If he can't turn it around in a year, the guy's mm. got to go. And he goes, and his staff will go, and another manager comes in with his staff, and he'll want to make changes to the squad, mm. and you start this cycle. Mm. Um, and I look at, you know, I looked at the championship, and I looked at the likes of Dean Smith when he had a really tough start for Brentford the previous season, but the club st absolutely stuck with him. I look at Lee Johnson at Bristol City, who had a really tough 18 games, 19 games without a win, they stuck with him. And they're reaping the rewards now mm -hmm. because they have done so well. And it's just, I'm not saying everyone's got a, a shelf life, but you've got to give people time mm. to do their job. You um, mentioned it earlier in the in the session today. Obviously, um, you're doing uh, a few interviews yourself at the moment um, for potential uh, jobs here and there. And you talk, I'm not going to give anything specific away, don't worry. Uh, but you talked about um, a particular example, and it's common that you talked about first 100 days it's a common kind of thing in, in kind of leadership philosophy and you said that the other day you went for a job and they asked you what your first 30 days in the and job and that was and someone actually said it to me and 
someone who also previously two weeks prior had said it jokingly to me forget the hundred days it's, it's a yeah. one month but it is now it really is because if you go into a club if you go into a championship um, club change you're looking at Saturday Tuesday Saturday Tuesday in that first 30 days you could play seven eight games mm. with a cup game maybe nine mm. you could play eight nine games if you've lost six you know or seven of those games you just come in and you could have a really tough one you could be playing the top seven of the top ten teams for example or however the, the permutation fits it out for you then you could have a really tough start mm. you could have a couple of key players injured I'm not saying it's ideal world you hope very much this new managers bounce which is nonsense by the way mm -hmm. it, but you could find yourself after less than a month getting derision from supporters the board oh, I'm not sure we've made the right choice here the media immediately jumps on it you know disastrous hire for so-and-so club and 30 days in you're under enormous pressure mm -hmm. which is absolutely ludicrous mm -hmm. ludicrous I went to work for a bank obviously it's pre-2000 now the first words were spend the first year settling in get used to our philosophy get used to the customers get used to how we price and quote and the manner in which you speak to and after the first year we talk about everything else can you imagine that in football mm. imagine the first year just to settle in and get used to the players mm. it doesn't happen so I think now forget 100 days forget 30 days even you just got to go in and try and win your first three games or win two out of first three mm -hmm. um, not only going to Solskjaer Oli the man enormous respect for him as a person I know him and um, fantastic start at Manchester United mm -hmm. you know but I hope he is asking all, I'm sure he's asked all the right questions because you want to give yourself the best chance of success mm -hmm. but different owners different mm -hmm. expectations unrealistic expectations is causing no end of problems I know that you're, you're you know you've spoken to a few clubs over the last uh, few months and um, probably you'll speak to some more over the next few months who knows um, but I know that for you there have been some serious sort of red flags you know in those interviews where you thought well, hang on a second I'm not sure I want to continue with this for whatever reason thinking about future roles that you'd like to do whether it's as a manager or as a, a sporting director whichever path you end up choosing what's the sort of best case scenario that you could hope for but the ideal environment the ideal interview questions you would ask and then responses you would get that would make you think I, th I think it's the best situation is people who understand um, the creation of positive environments environments are conducive to development and learning and performance that for me is is the music to your ears the, that you want to hear mm. you want to know that the people understand that it will take time um, the need to set targets the need to review the need to communicate ideas and needs to overcome problems and how are we going to do it clarity financial clarity for example transfer recruitment staffing all the all the key questions that apply to any industry any business you want to hear that you want to hear back you know if someone's saying to you well oh, we should be a top six club why well we should be with our reputation well what does that you know constitute what does that mean and, and I think more and more you, you still hear that and, and I think now you want I hear so many managers and coaches say to me it's a quality of your owner and it really is and never losing sight I said earlier Matthew for example owns Brentford it's his he pays the bill it's his prerogative to do mm -hmm. uh, what he wants to do never going to doubt that or question that but I think the owners coming in if, if they if they want that success it's the understanding uh, of what's involved the time scales building blocks firm foundations which go for any industry uh, and, and when you hear that in an interview mm -hmm. I think you can have some real mm -hmm. well, hang on a second, this could be very interesting mm -hmm. and it gives you an, and my question to them will always be what represents success 
30 days, 90 days, six months a year. What represents success for you? Mm -hmm. And again, if you hear the right, the right comments coming back, it gives you a real lift. Mm -hmm. I can't um, talk to you and not talk to you about um, your experience at Rangers and then, and then Forest, and specifically as it pertains to, um, I guess, the relationship that you had with um, manager or chair, uh, their owner or chairman. Um, Rangers, real sort of pressure cooker environment, huge, huge historic club, I guess a real, was it a step up in terms of the pressure that you uh, felt? Absolutely, and uh, absolutely. Again, the value of David Weir, mm -hmm. having managed the club and, uh, sorry, managed, I mean, um, captain the club on their Hall of Fame board in the magnificent Ibox hallway. Um, so he knew the club, you know, mm -hmm. he understood the pressures involved with the club. Um, and we could talk for hours just about Glasgow, but you go into uh, a goldfish bowl, James, which is unlike any other. Mm. It really is, and you enter it, and if I go back in an hour, I've, I've learned my lessons, that won't happen again. And within hours, You'd be doing it 20 again. media, you know, 20 pages every day, Rangers and Celtic, and two radio shows, and media demands, and fans, and you know, it, it's, it's incredible. The passion of the fans is second to none. You're talking about two, global institutions football wise in terms of Rangers and Celtic incredible fan base in incredible support globally um, and a passion desire to succeed the European football needs those two clubs on the on the stage you know because they're such big clubs um, but it 50,000 every home game mm -hmm. you know live box and incredible tra away traveling support we went to play I think it was we went to play Kilmarnock on a Tuesday evening and the weather was horrendous and the game was on TV so you've got the game on TV, midweek game, horrendous weather. I mean, it was raining cats and dogs, literally. And I turned to the security guy and I said, what's, what's, your, what, what's our fans away support? He went, uh, 11,500. And I said, oh, only 11,500. And he turned around deadpan and said, that's all they would give us. Had it been 15,000, they, they, they would have filled it. Yeah. And it's incredible. Yeah. You, know, you name any other club that would do that, mm. and it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, But with it comes this unbelievable desire mm -hmm. and expectation. And, you know, 95% are fantastic people, and 4 to 5%, which uh, mm. cause you some problems. But that's, that's life in general. Did that added um, pressure um, and scrutiny and passion, I suppose, did it um, consciously affect the way that you made decisions? Uh, no and yes, and I'll say it in that order. Mm -hmm. uh, we went in there, we inherited nine players, so we had a blank canvas, we built the squad, we took a lot of players that we knew from, from down south. Again, some suggestions, or not pressure, but some suggestions could get cheaper you know, overseas, but we had to know, we had to move very quickly. The, the uh, demand was non-negotiable promotion. I don't mind that, black and white, what represents success? Promotion. Mm -hmm. We must go up, absolutely non-negotiable. And we did by 11 points, so there's all credit to the squad that did their job. Won the League Cup and got to the Cup Final, beating Celtic on the way. So first season they did it. So no's the first part of the question. Yes, the second part, because again, Rangers were now back. They've been to the third tier, so they've worked their way back up the divisions. Um, and Rangers were now back in the top flight. Uh, and with it, again, you can't say, come up, consolidate and build, which is what we were told. Mm. But it's never that way because the, the, the natural fan in them mm -hmm. says, "Come on, we've got to, now. We're going to chase down Celtic. You know, we're the most successful club in the world with 54 league titles. Now we're going for 55. This is it. But we just come back up. It's a young squad, guys on minimal wages compared to the obvious rivals. I mean, you know, fractions of their wage. 
Um, and anyone with a common sense will tell you that it's too early. That first year that, or the first year in the Premier League, it was too early. However, that is reported, James, as lacks ambition. Does he not know we're Rangers, we're going up? And it's like, of course I know you're Rangers. Of course you don't think we want to win the title and go into Europe and Champions League. Of course we do. But you're dealing with that weight of expectation the entire time. And, and that second, I, I said, in answer to your question, I allowed myself to probably get wrapped up a little bit in that and go for a number of senior players. I thought we needed physicality and seniority and maturity. And maybe the gut was saying to me, you've gone young at Brentford and done well. You've done young here. Why, you know, why are you not... Why are you changing your, your game plan? Mm -hmm. And as I say, rightly or wrongly, I probably succumb to that, to that pressure in that respect. Final question, because I think we both want a beer at this stage. <laughs> um, you've talked uh, again earlier today about one of your fundamental philosophies is to be um, respectful and transparent. So the way that you do kind of man management is transparency. So um, you want to be able to give, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you want to be able to give honest feedback to, mm -hmm. to people in your charge but likewise you want them to give you honest feedback in a respectful way not, so, not yeah. F and Jeff and tell you you're an idiot or whatever mm -hmm. but do it in a respectful way in an environment that suits them so if it's one on one you know, yeah. that's, that's a-okay one of the key issues that I think people especially in football find with all this scrutiny it's really difficult to deal with the media and, and you know there's a lot of um, distrust of, of the media I think and as far as I know, you've always dealt uh, very respectfully and, and, and quite openly with the media. But mm. do you have a sort of uh, a personal philosophy for how to deal with that particular pressure and to, uh, to manage media? Yeah, I um, Well, how long have we got? <laughs> um, as long as you want going before a beer. To, uh, going to Glasgow, to Rangers, I was told by, I won't name him, but someone I respect in the game managed the very highest level said to me, get yourself a media guy. Have your own media man to look after you. Personal, kind Personal of Personal, yeah, to come in and, and control your media. Mm. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm okay. I, I can, you know, I'm not the best, but I'm not the worst. I can speak and, and I have my thoughts and you're honest and transparent. And I was all for, I am all for, communicate more with the fans because it's their club. You know, I'm not saying give away your team selection or mm. I'm not going to sure. But, you know, tell them what's happening. Give them exposure, the film training and, and see a little bit. So it's their club. They want to know more. The goings on and what does the master do? And here's the you know, here's the hydrotherapy pool and cryo chambers and everything else. Make them feel part of their club. So I didn't take the advice of the media you know, because hey, you, know, you spend a lot of money hiring someone to be your basically your personal media guy or woman. Um, and I went to Glasgow and like I told you earlier, you know, you had to. You got to the point where you walk on eggshells because you, whatever you say can be spun. And I was told, when I first got there by a, good, a really good journalist, he said to me, you can't have two good cops in Glasgow. So what does that mean? He said, there's a good cop, there's a bad cop. When I got there, Ronnie Dyler was getting all the abuse in the paper. I mentioned it publicly last week that the abuse he was getting was almost border on legal, as far as I was concerned. It was, it was horrendous. But I was a good cop. You know, we won the league and we beat Celtic in the semi-final and we league cup and promotion and mm -hmm. hey, it's all rosy. Yeah. Then Brendan turned up. Yeah, suddenly there's And a suddenly uh, we had a pre-season friendly or something and there's, there's a, a sunshine negative, boy in town. a negative oh. twist to it. Now we think this year Stephen Gerrard's arrived and now suddenly they're questioning Brendan. You know, lost a couple of games and he's rowing with the board and, you know, it's incredible. He's had and two Leicester jobs come up. Exactly, and, and there's two, <laughs> he's had two trebles. Mm. 
two trebles up in Glasgow, all credit to them. I mean, I'm a Rangers manager, but I'm saying you have to respect absolutely the job that he's done. Um, and he's a, he's a very, very classy manager. So you look at it and go, it's turned again. I never forgot that advice. And then you get to the stage when you're the bad cop, whatever you say, James, is spun. Mm. Whatever you say is spun. Mm -hmm. So if you turn around and say, you know, like, really see expectation with building a squad this year, next year might be our year. Warburton lacks ambition, doesn't understand Rangers. If you say, well, we're going to give it our very best shot, Warburton says we're going to win the title. I didn't say that. And you find yourself time and again, and David Weir's always looked at me, David, he knows I didn't say that. But it's just how it's reported, and you've got to be so very careful. Mm. And you hear, you know, Warburton said this, have a poll, should he go on a radio show? Yes, 53% said mm. on this poll, 53% of 11 people or whatever, but they don't mm. tell you that. Yeah. And it, you know, then of course the following day, the, the poll last night on the radio so-and-so says that he should go and or he should... Yeah, so hold. it feels like there's an agenda. It, it just feels that it's, yeah. it's, they've just got to sell column inches, yeah. they've got to fill space and, and radio time. But in the old days, managers would sort of be on friendly terms, at least, with, with a couple of journalists, so they could call them up and, well, there's one or two and really spin good guys. their own stories. Yeah, and then there is, don't get me wrong, there's, mm. some, there's one or two really good guys, mm. but there's some absolute... Not good guys. Not good guys, <laughs> I've been very careful what yeah. I say there. Um, but as, and, and you learn very quickly, so it was a great learning curve to come out of there. would never not want to do that, you know, great experience. would walk back to Glasgow because it's the institution and the great club and the supporters and everything comes with it. But that from a media and answer to your question, that was a real, mm. you know, I came out of there, went to Nottingham Forest, I remember the guy at Nottingham Forest, good guy, said to me, oh, media shouldn't take more than 15 minutes, I'm sorry about that, is that okay? 15 minutes, is that, <laughs> all, is that all? Not a problem. That's a godsend. And that was literally, you know, two different worlds. And he, he looked at me and said, well, previous managers have complained about 15 minutes. No, 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 after, after Glasgow, that's just a walk in the park. And it was, it was a completely different animal. Mm. Wow, you know, so you understand they've got to sell papers. You understand they're dealing with a, a fervent public, it's, you know, the pa a level of passion completely unlike. I, I'm a Tottenham fan, you know, I was born in North London, so I'm a Tottenham or Arsenal. That derby for me was the biggest game of the year, surely. Then you go to the old firm mm. and you realise it's just a different level completely. Mm. Uh, and it's that experience, James, was fantastic. But learned a lot about media, and I think going forward, managers and coaches and technical directors by the way because again if they should have some accountability I think exactly to the media right. yeah. if technical directors mm. are going to be hiring the manager mm. and the manager you know they go through two managers for example to mm. use your short tenure term mm. well then who's accountable for that because mm -hmm. you've hired them they can't be they can't be untouchable so there's a Personally, responsibility managers get so many questions from the media about transfer policy and you know why did you buy him why didn't you buy him are you buying anyone else and Often now, it's not the manager making those decisions, but they have to front up to the process. Uh, and, and that's a very good point. Mm. And a very famous Premier League manager who's, who's now retired said to, said to me, um, it was very helpful, he said, never forget that the, the manager takes the bullets from the board. Mm. And I looked at him and he expanded it. He said, but don't forget that, Mark. He said, you, you as a manager will have to take the bullets for the board and you do that willingly and you support it. And you, he said, if you do it's that, part of the job. you can survive. Mm. And he's right, you have to sit there and it may be their decision and you sit there and go, no, I'm in full agreement and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to do it. And that's why certain managers and or managers and coaches are paid good money because they do take an awful lot of bullets. Mark Warburton, you've just mentioned that you're a Tottenham fan. I'm an Arsenal fan, yeah, so no. I'm going to have to terminate the interview <laughs> now. I knew that was coming, but thank, thank you very much. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you.